From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Isn't he great with his Oscars, but he has to hold a note. It, by definition, it resolves spontaneously, but it can cause long-term repercussions if it isn't actually acknowledged. And that's why to revolute money, and it became a verb. Mm. So you don't just send somebody money and say, I'll revolute that to you. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, one woman and her dog go solo travelling. A day in the life of a dog warden. And the who, what and the why now of concussion. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's, yeah, solo travelling, but by choice, right? The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show started with our host wishing he was elsewhere. Today I'd like to be an Ackle. Saw Ackle on TV this morning and it just looked so glorious and beautiful and dreamy and... Irish and we were there before we did a we did one of the most memorable for us at least <laughs> uh, radio shows from there 262 years ago on the Wild Atlantic Way tours when we used to go on those and it was just so lovely I remember um, uh, enjoying it tremendously anyway obviously it's in the news a lot today because of the Oscar thing so you're probably a bit Oscar out of it I won't dwell on it I'll just try and find a few sidebar mentions of it here this morning on the basis that I just want to say congratulations to everyone all the Irish nominees. And you know, there are some nominees aren't getting as much love and coverage as others. So we want to say well done to them and their families this morning. I'm talking about the Irish, of course. I've never seen anything quite like it. As I said last night, it's it, it was it's it's like Italian 90 with popcorn. It it's just this sense of of can do, will do. I I've just from the moment January the first started, I thought this is going to be potentially a great year for people. I, I just have a good I came in thinking very positively about this year after all those horrible years in the in the shadows and just awfulness and here we are just trying to look up and uh, put out our better better side and it just fe- felt great felt great why should I feel happy for somebody else's Oscar nomination but it's just when you're Irish it's like your team winning um, and even if they're nominations it feels like a win it's it's a bit like the Italian 90 even though we didn't win the World Cup we qualified for the World Cup and we've qualified for the Oscars over and over again Barry Keoghan Barry Keoghan one of the nicest people you can meet he was here with us not too long ago um, I remember the first time I met him on the Late Late Show hit it off immediately a bit like Todd last Friday remember Todd came into the studio with his wife and as soon as you sometimes you meet somebody you shake your hand and you just go oh friends for life just got it and Barry Keoghan's one of those guys and when he came on the, the Late Late Show back in 2018 five years ago I was saying to him, you're going to win stuff. You, you've just got it in you. And he said, oh, you better believe it. This is what happened. Okay. Well, I have to say, if, with your positivity, uh, your skill and everything that's going on in your world at the moment, I think you're going to be very successful. I want you to come back here when you start winning oh, loads of awards right. and yeah. be a friend of ours because I'll I'm the, great. I'll put the Oscar there. Do that. That's what the I want to hear. That's what I want to hear. Barry Kogan. Good man. Good work. I like your confidence. I like that a lot. <laughs> Three of them. Three of them. <laughs> Imagine, he said that. He said, I'll put the Oscar there. I mean, I didn't even prompt. I just said awards, you're going to win awards. He said, yeah, I'll put the Oscar there and another one there and another one there. That was five years ago. Here's the guy who has a little notebook and he puts down the names of the directors, the most famous directors in the world that he wants to work with and he has worked with them all. He'll write down actors he wants to meet and and chat with and work with and again it comes through this is the manifestation. I don't know, uh, people say you're lucky or you're manifest. I don't know if you believe in any of that but either way, Personally, I believe you earn it, and I think he's earned that. And so good on him. I just, I was thinking about that uh, that chat this morning. I thought, yeah, that's did he? Did that actually happen? And sure enough, he's he's in the mix. 
And then you think you find yourself going, remember that song, some guys, some guys have all the luck. And I think, Paul Maskell, you have all the luck because, and again, earned his work. I mean, that guy is now, uh, that West End play is doing um, Streetcar Named Desire is moving from off the West End to the West End proper um, in, 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 in the next little while before he then goes on to shoot Gladiator 2. Um, that's, that's where he's going. And that's the trajectory gets bigger and bigger. Now, he's got nominated for an Oscar. Not only that, he's the most lovely family. We met them on the Late Late Show. His sister, Nell, talented musician. Mum and dad, lovely people. There's another brother I don't know, but, but certainly uh, lovely uh, people. And um, I know his mum was on with Ray yesterday talking about chemotherapy and so on. They've had a hectic little, uh, little time together and big time together. But they're an emotional family. They're a bonded family. They're a loving family. And uh, win, lose or draw, it's a good news story for the Maskells. I'm really happy for them. And um, it's just, uh, they just seem like good people, generally speaking. But then you're going to go, Paul, you know, if it's not normal people, it's Oscars. If it's not BAFTAs, it's some. Well, at least, you know, he's a great actor, obviously. But please God in heaven above, I'm, I'm not, I'm Irish enough to hope that he can't sing as well. I mean, that, there's only so much we can give him. Isn't he great with his Oscars? But he has to hold a note. And yet, here he is with Nell singing the villager song. Paul Mesco with your angelic voice and Oscar nominations. God damn it, that was recorded last year with so that's Paul and Nell singing, and Nell posted it on her Instagram. Um, so if you want to see the whole thing, it's it's beautiful. I mean, listen to that. That was gorgeous. So well done. Now it's just it's so lovely. And of course, uh, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, you were on with us not too long ago. I'm delighted for them. As Justine Stafford, a great comedian, says, Can't wait for 3 a.m. at the Oscars when the Irish get everyone on the floor for Rock the Boat. That's she's <laughs> That's going to be, that's going to be that kind of night. It's going to, but you know, when they go to America, I've never been to the Oscars, but I would imagine when you go there, it can all be a little bit, oh my God, I'm like super excited to be at the Oscars. And the, the Irish come along and go, do you mind that? Pints. <laughs> I don't mean to be the, the typical, you know, you're going, it's not all about the alcohol. I'm just saying it's party and it's fun and it's just, low, get rid of the masks and get, get a song going. And I'd say they'll really make it a great place to be. Who's Oscar? I've held two, if not three, Oscars in my life. One was Brenda Frickers. One was Glenn Hansard's when he was on for, uh, for once. And who else? Does Neil Jordan have at least one Oscar for the Crying Game? And um, yeah, so there are a few Oscars knocking around uh, the the island. But the other guys that also that are nominated for Avatar and for Elvis and for you know when you think of it, Paul. By the way, I mentioned. Uh, uh, Bill Nye yesterday, the, the living the uh, that great film that kind of went under the radar. He got his first Oscar nomination at the age of 73. Paul Meskell is the youngest at 26. And of course, Austin Butler for Elvis, which we've been uh, loving. And uh, Brendan Fraser, we haven't seen The Whale yet, so I don't know. Delighted also for Jamie Lee Curtis, who was such a, jo- a joyful guest on the, on the Late Late Show recently. And she has got her first 
nomination. Surprised it was her first uh, for Everything Everywhere All at Once, which uh, was a film that I was talking about um, and has done very well. Richard uh, Bainham uh, is an animator on Avatar and we spoke to him some years ago, but uh, he is a great, like an extraordinary talent as well. And the guy from the Elvis movie, Redmond. Remember last week we were talking about the uh, the Redmonds who all got in touch with us to say, uh, where is um, where is the mention of our guy, our neighbour, our nephew, and uh, for his work as an editor on Elvis. They, they, well done to uh, all of them. Great. Okay, uh, Barry Kogan's Instagram was... Um, He's a picture of the Best Supporting Actor nominees and his face there. And it says, that one's for you, Brando. Daddy loves you. And that's, of course, with reference to his son, Brando, and his delight his delight at winning that, which is kind of pretty much dedicating the nomination to him. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. Just kidding. But for a piece that starts off saying how he won't dwell on the whole Ireland winning the Oscars thing, he kind of went and dwelled on the whole Ireland winning the Oscars thing. But sure, look it, we won't be rowing over it or anything. Anyhow, on to more serious fear. I'm not sure how it happened, but the need to buy a Tolberone at the airport seems to have been come part and parcel of the modern airport experience. And I'm sorry, I, I, I can't remember the, 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 the name of our friend who, who did the uh, Elvis uh, award nominee it just escaped me right now but I know it's Redmond but the first name is escaping me you might help me out there uh, but the Tolberone grab a Tolberone before you board uh, because it could assist you Jonathan Redmond whoo couldn't think of it well done editor uh, nominee for Elvis good man well done to him and his family so that's good uh, back to the Tolberones less importantly um, a, a flight attendant said that we love people who come in with Tolberones because when they share a bit of their Tolberone with us, we tend to give them extra privileges. So if you say, would you like some? And they go, yes, please. And sure enough. So if you want that better seat, more chocolate, more, more, more coffee, things that you mightn't expect here and there, bring the Tolberone, offer it to the air steward, and you never know what might happen. I'm not really sure what to make of that conclusion, so I'll just leave it to your imagination. Let's move on to Claire Keegan-related news, shall we? I was talking about um, the book Small Things Like These. I actually gave it as a present to somebody recently and um, well-received to English friends of mine, and they were delighted with that, and hopefully they'll enjoy it, because it is a good book to give to people, particularly foreign people, I suppose, in some ways. Um, one English, one Scottish. But to say, there you go, um, that is a little piece of Ireland. And it's short as well, so they, they won't be bored to death if they don't like it. But it's been made into a film, and Killian Murphy is going to play the main role in this film, apparently. Uh, so well done. Um, and Clara Keegan wrote the book, as you know. But last November, according to Cork Bio, a team visited the southeast town of New Ross in County Wexford to scout locations. And they checked into the local school, St. Mary's, uh, to see what was happening. And uh, let's see what happens. It's set in 1985, focuses on coal and timber merchant Bill Furlong as he does his rounds in the lead up to Christmas. And that was uh, based, uh, it's going to be based on the book that won the Orwell Prize and the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year for 2022. She's having a golden streak also, and rightly so. Quite right. But wait, what about dead, tasteless British comedians? Ryan isn't sure he can digest this nugget of newsings. Ben, what? Benny Hill. 
Now, Benny Hill, what, how long would Benny Hill last in 2023? Probably, we've been to minus, minus numbers. <laughs> Please welcome, but gone. Uh, he wouldn't like. He wouldn't even get the. He wouldn't even get a syllable out to, to introduce him. Anyway, Benny Hill is enjoying a huge revival in Spain. Now I don't understand why. He had huge ratings in Spain in the eighties and nineties. He died aged sixty eight in nineteen ninety two, and uh, the, his last TV appearance was um, recorded in southern Spain. Still a legend on the oh the Costa del Sol. All right, okay. Well, you can. Decide from that what you will, shall we? We'll leave that over there. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah. Okay. Very good. I remember that, that there was, they once said that Costa del Sol is, is, is populated by, you know, escaped criminals from the UK. They used to call it the Costa del Sol. So long as we're here, we're going to be okay. Um. <laughs> Maybe not that funny. Your mileage may vary, of course. But the newsings mileage, well... It's non-existent at this stage, so let's call it a day. Dog ownership levels remain high in Ireland post-Covid, which means dog wardens are busier than ever. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, reporter Brian O'Call told Claire how he spent a day with a dog warden. Just before I went out in the vans with the wardens, he told me about how they are trying to cope in the shelter with the sheer volume of dogs being given up and also some of the new breeds, often very large, powerful dogs. They didn't have to deal with these in years previous. Our workload, I suppose, has, has trebled. So all dogs in the city bounds must be on a lead at all times. Must be, it, it, the effectual control, the city bylaws dictate that they must be on a lead. Having good recall on your dog isn't necessarily effectual control. One of our guys is going out to even um, a graveyard this morning because they're using graveyards to exercise dogs. They're fouling on the gravestones and and leaving it there. And then in terms of your work in the centre here, the number of dogs being given up? It has definitely trebled, if not quadrupled. Unfortunately, the country is saturated with dogs. They're now creating dogs that very little is known about them long-term about their temperament. They're being bred for size. Some of these dogs are not on the restricted breeds list. So you could be dealing with a dog that's 60, 70, 80 kgs in weight that's not on the restricted breeds list, but should. And they're being walked by kids as young as 10, 11, 12 in parks. We have some of the um, the Belgian Malinois, which, as far as we're concerned, should be on the restricted breeds list. These here. are big dogs, obviously. They're big dogs, and they're very, very agile. I mean, they're, they're used by military and police forces all over the world. So they, why are people getting them as domestic pets? Because they don't come under the restricted breeds list, so you don't have to muzzle them. You know this thing where people say there's no such thing as a bad dog, there's a bad owner, mm. but wh- wh- where do you fall on that? So it's, it's the potential is there for every dog to attack. The, there is the potential for every dog to bite or attack somebody. But some dogs are more prone to it than others. We would deal with more bites from, we'll say, Jack Russells, Labradors, Retrievers, than we would with Pitbulls or Staffordshire Terriers. But the problem is the bite pressure per square inch with these other dogs, that's what does the damage. That's just fascinating. And I'm looking at a picture of the Belgian Malinois, uh, Brian. It, it looks exactly like an Alsatian, but it's used by the uh, Navy SEALs for its intelligence, agility, loyalty and stealth. And they're described as being fierce, fierce and fast. Now, from there, from the, uh, the, the shelter, you went out and about with the wardens, checking licences, making sure 
As Vincent said, the people had control of their dogs. Yes, and they called to houses reminding people to update uh, dog licences, patrol parks to make sure dogs were on leads. And then picking up on Vincent's point, an issue was breeds on restricted lists who should be muzzled. But um, this person we met and his dog, we passed them near Shandon Bells, which you'll hear in the background. So his dog should is on the restricted list, but wasn't muzzled. Hello. Where are you? Uh, it's one of the city dog wardens. Would you mind popping the muzzle onto the dog? Yeah. Thanks very much. So this is one of the breeds that has to be... This is one of the restricted breeds, yeah. Is this the Staffy mix, is it? American Staffy. American Staffy. It's just one of the restricted breeds in a public place. The dog has to be muzzled in a public place, uh, which he's complying with there now. Bite force would be fairly fairly strong. Uh, One of the restricted breeds, so um, in in a public place, dog always has to be muzzled and on a, a leash no longer than a meter. I suppose to be fair to that dog owner, he had he had the muzzle with him. He, ha- he had the muzzle and you can see that the dog is putting up a bit of a struggle now trying to take the muzzle off again. But look, it's only a matter of the dog getting used to it, you know, associating the muzzle with uh, 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 as a good sign that it's getting out to go out for a walk. And to be fair, that uh, dog owner was quite compliant. And... He was, he was. Very pleasant. Um, so um, in about 13 or 14 years that I'm doing this job, I've been bitten about six times um, and believe it or not five of those bites all came from different golden cocker spaniels really yeah not a dog you would uh, think is aggressive no well it, 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 um, I think it's proven out that there's actually a term uh, uh, cocker rage it's probably to do with the, the inbreeding in Ireland but um, and it's always the, the golden cocker spaniels so yeah, I've had uh, the joy of being bitten by five separate. Maybe it's me. Maybe the, the cocker spaniels just don't. Serious bites? Like, not not serious. Uh, skin wasn't broken or anything, but the, the intention was there. So you're calling to a property here now. We're calling to a property um, in relation to a complaint that we received um, an elderly woman after getting bitten on her finger. So we're calling to the owner of the dog and um, uh, try to get a little bit more information and hopefully resolve the issue. So just in the early parts of that clip, Claire, it was one instance um, where wardens were quite clear more breeds should be added to the restricted list and then those breeds should be muzzled when they're in a public area. Particularly newer crossbreeds that were seen, which could be up to 80 kg in weight and have a very significant bite power. Now, as you heard then towards the end of that clip, uh, a call had come in to go and liaise with the owner of a young dog who had bit someone quite seriously. Uh, in this case, the person had been minding the dog and the suggestion was the lead had got caught in the dog's legs and then the dog reacted when the lead was lead was pulled so the warden uh, David Nagel had to call to the owner uh, to check on the dog and just to see if all the paperwork was in order so we're just going into this department hello hello oh. hello in good order Overly friendly. Yeah. Boxers generally are. Yeah. Uh, I have her for since April. So she's fine when I when I I touch her. She's fine. Oh yeah. I'm just I'm just trying to assess that that uh, whether or not the dog is aggressive or has any aggression tendencies. Yeah. So just tell me what you're doing, David. I'm just giving the dog kind of a getting a a grasp of the dog, touching her in areas where generally she wouldn't be rubbed or petted. We'll say just to see if I can get a reaction. She's just uh, an over-exuberant puppy. We're two strange individuals who are entering this dog's property as well, you know, and she's actually being overly welcoming. So, is the dog microchipped? Yeah. And is she registered? Yeah. To yourself? Yeah. It just shows you, doesn't it, that the friendliest of dogs 
has the potential to, to bite, yeah, uh, depending on the situation, you know. So just a small bit of advice. If you if you are going on holidays again I'm never, ever. and are leaving the dog, don't don't leave the dog put the dog into a boarding facility. I'm not concerned it. that the dog is an aggressive dog. Okay. The dog is seems like a, an extraordinarily friendly dog. Be, because the dog has bitten somebody, I, my advice to you would be to muzzle that dog when, when you are out walking. Uh, just leaving the property. Bit of a rarity that all paperwork is in order. If she didn't have the paperwork in order, there would have been action. There would have been action, yeah. Some uh, people might be surprised to hear that if a dog inflicts a serious injury like that on someone, that there isn't a consequence. Well, it, it, there can be a consequence, but it, 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 it's it's basically uh, down to the person who was injured. And that's one of the reasons I assessed the dog. Um, because if I was under the assumption that the dog was an aggressive dog, I would have pushed and, and, and tried to request that that woman would surrender the dog to me. David, the dog warden, ending Brian O'Connell's report on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. On Tuesday's Liveline, Rachel spoke to Joe Duffy about her son who suffers from a condition called Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, or ARFID. ARFID is usually associated with children who are on the neurodiverse spectrum, but not always, as Sinead, who spoke to Joe this afternoon about her nine-year-old daughter, can attest. So I just wanted to say that, um, obviously, she's not autistic, um, and, and we haven't been diagnosed. Um, okay. And I'd be interested to know how that lady actually got diagnosed. Okay. Um, so she's the second child out of four. Um, and it would have probably started, um, I mean, she was fussy, like I breastfed her, so she might have been a bit fussy, you know, with the breastfeeding compared to my son previously. Um, but I mean, at the start, you know, up to, I suppose, the first year or so, you don't really put much thought on that, you know, a child, yeah. you know every child's different and all the rest. So... I suppose we, we progressed on to um, spoon feeding um, and I suppose she would have got her teeth a lot later um, than my previous child. So again, didn't really put my, much thought on us, but she would kind of gag on any lumps and then she would kind of throw back mm. her food and then she would kind of refuse. So it got to the stage where she just would refuse all spoons. So we went on to finger foods. Um, okay. And I suppose this, you're talking like the the... the the lumpy gagging would have been, um, you know, kind of 10, 11 months, kind of the age when they would have been nearly past all that, you would have thought. Um, so two, three years um, old, then she was, you know, obviously onto her finger foods. And uh, she was, like, very selective on what she would eat. Um, so we fell into the bracket of waffles and chicken goujons. Yeah, OK. And those were literally for, like, years, the only thing she would eat for her dinner. Um, and like that, it had to be a certain brand. It had to be like yeah. cut a certain way. Um, you know, like yeah, like it, it just had to. It was so particular. Um, so again, like that, I went at the time to see a dietitian with her. She was about three at the time, and it was put down to fussy eating, okay. um, as in you know she was just that age. Yeah. Um, and her advice was to kind of give her a, the dinner we were having and kind of sit her down and tell her that, you know, you have this amount of time mm-hmm. and if you don't eat it, we're going to take it away and we'll move on with our day. So I did try that. Um, but what, obviously what happened then was she just became really lethargic um, and, you know, ill, <laughs> you yeah, know, over the course, course of uh, an evening and the next day. 
So within half an hour then, um, I'd given her a piece of toast the following, um, like at lunchtime. And like in half an hour, time, like she was fine then. Do you know, she, she just was back mm. to normal. So it was quite clear that, you know, it was self-inflicted. So I suppose the point to get across is she will be absolutely starving. But unlike you or I, you'd like literally eat out of a bin. Mm-hmm. She will literally like not eat unless she has something that she feels comfortable eating. That so specific food, yeah. So it's just to give perspective. Like at the moment, she doesn't eat any meat. She doesn't eat any vegetables. She doesn't mm. eat any fruit. So mm. it's mostly carbohydrates which would consist of bread, toast, variations of that. Um, so as you can imagine, it's been an absolute nightmare. Yeah. Um, I, I went, I've gone to occupational therapists. Their advice, uh, I'd say she was about five when I did that, their advice was to get her involved in cooking mm. and, you know, do baking. Sure, obviously I, I had done all that before, but obviously did it again. But like she enjoyed that, but there was no chance she would post any of it in her mouth. You know, that okay. kind of way. Um, what else? Like, I thought I went then, I had previous babies, so obviously naturally being as a health nurse, I walked, you know, I talked to them about it. Okay. Um, they didn't really have any kind of advice. I, if one health nurse actually said to me that they get very limited training on, like, nutrition. Um, mm. So she kind of said to me about the psychologist, the HSE psychologist, so I went to him and his advice at the time, like this, she could have been about six maybe, his advice at the time was to basically let her eat whatever she wants, which didn't really sit easy with me because obviously, you know, like he kind of said, if she will eat Nutella on toast, let her eat Nutella okay. on toast. Yeah, rather let than... Let her have a bowl of cereal yeah, for her dinner if yeah, she'll eat that. Rather you know, than eat nothing, thing. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, obviously at that stage... She eat wasn't something is better than eating nothing, anyway. yeah. Exactly, yeah. 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 But obviously, naturally, as a mother and a parent, you just you struggle with the thoughts. She's not getting basic nutrition in her, like, you know, that kind of way. Mm. So, like that, um, I suppose, like, obviously having the extra baby and that and all that brings with that, um, we kind of just pushed on with, like, just kind of letting her eat whatever she would eat. And how is but she, Sinead, how is she doing now? She's nine now. Like, she's... She has energy. That's the thing that, like, obviously that lady said as well. It's bizarre. I don't know where she gets the energy from, but... Like, periodically, she will get very tired. You know, um, there mm. have been days where she might miss school because she's extremely tired. Um, but, like, she's underweight. So I suppose fast forward to 2020, the Christmas of 2020, she started kind of refusing even the stuff that she would kind of take normally. Mm. She just would kind of eat... She was eating less. You know, I could see that she'd lost weight. Um, and at that point, um, I went to the GP. And... Um, well, if the truth be known, I actually got online and looked up psychologists, okay. children's psychologists, and tried to find somebody that could help me. I must have emailed about, I don't know, seven or eight different And had you ones. ever, at that station, had you ever heard of Arfa? Did you? Did I had. You, you see, this oh, is the you funny had, thing. Okay, yeah. I had. I had heard about this back in about, um, God, it could have been 2016, mm. 2017. Back the first dietitian I went to see, her name was Ruth Charles. And actually, she did an article in um, the Irish Examiner in 2017 about it. Okay. So just she said in it about, um, she explains that it's an eating or feeding disturbance where mm. those affected either don't eat enough or show little interest in feeding, only accept limited diet because of sensory issues or refuse food primarily because of previous bad experiences. Um, of eating now I, I mean I don't like the only thing I can possibly think of is, is bad experiences is maybe like that with the teeth 
That's Sinead talking to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line about her nine-year-old daughter who's been diagnosed with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Ryan Tuberty was joined in studio this morning by Ariana Dunn, who is a solo traveller. Well, semi-solo. She takes her dog with her. I worked for for 16 years working in the media industry and um, I suffered some burnout five years ago, which Mm -hmm. is quite topical at the moment. After Jacinda Ireland so eloquently put it with um, not having much left in the tank. And I decided that I wanted to kind of reassess and retrain and look at different ways in which I could kind of work for myself. Will we look at the burnout for a moment before Mm. we get into the travelling and so on like that? What what, you were working in the media area, is that what you said? Yeah, so I was working in advertising. advertising. Yeah. What does burnout feel like or look like? So um, I've subsequently become a coach, so I'm, I'm, I, I know it quite well and I deal with it quite often. So it basically means that you just feel a bit sort of empty when it comes to work. You've totally checked out. Mm-hmm. You've lost all passion and all sort of drive and you really just feel like you're kind of going through the motions. So, so you've lost your work mojo. You've Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for, for me, I was working, you know, 14, 15 hour days and wasn't really sleeping, wasn't really eating properly um, and feeling sort of all consumed by work so you start to kind of like a lot of the rest of your life sort of fades into the background and you become quite consumed by by your career and that can be very depleting if you get to that burnout point. So what, what I'm, I think a lot of people would love to know then is how do you acknowledge burnout because as you, if you're so engulfed by it mm. it makes it harder to know you're in it mm-hmm. so how do you separate the two and, and then ultimately deal with the problem? Absolutely I mean I think that's where having good friends support and family kind of comes in so you know for me I think I had a lot of people who were sort of highlighting it and holding a mirror up to me and saying you know this this isn't you know good for you and you know maybe take a step back um, and you know I think it, it's, it's happening quite a lot now and particularly post-Covid people are feeling that kind of burnout and that kind of um, overwhelm because, you know, separating life from work it really became blurred um, yeah. and, and during that time. Um, so, you know, if you are experiencing it, there are there are supports and there are helps out there. And, you know, in terms of people like coaches or, or therapy or whatever it is that you might need to kind of address it. As a, okay. And you, you addressed yours? Yes. And came out the other side? Yeah. Uh, with what? A, with a new sense of purpose? Is that, would yeah, that be fair like to say? I or? basically, I took some time out. I actually went to the south of France and I, I wanted to if write. If you don't mind. <laughs> I wanted to write a book. So I, 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 I originally studied journalism and I wanted to get back to that passion. So right. when you lose your passions, you look for your passions again, you know. And um, during that time, I sort of um, met lots of wonderful people. And one thing that kept coming back was my desire to want to help people and to not have other people experience that. Um, so I decided to retrain as a, as a coach with Mindstream um, training facility um, where I now teach coaching, which yes. is quite nice. Um, and what, what are you coaching? So in terms of... So life, life coaching? coaching, career yeah. coaching, relationship coaching. I mean, you can really coach on anything. <laughs> right. So if people feel at a loose end or yes. whatever, it's, but it's not therapy. Or no, psych- absolutely. It's yeah. not therapy. So therapy is more looking at the past and what got me to here, whereas coaching is all forward focused ah. and where we can go. So it's goal setting and it's manifesting and it's looking at ways in which you can improve your life moving forward. You know, I mentioned manifesting this morning in the context of Barry Kogan, who mm. is, and, and his generation, I mean, Barry's what, in his 20s or early 20s or something like that and um, his generation I've spoken to a few of them here on the show love this manifestation Mm. uh, thing phenomenon 
and it's not just their generation. I know older people. Can you t- give us a definition of it and tell me um, what is is it is it is it how real or I mean I'm a skeptic so. Uh, uh, you need to try and explain it to me as as somebody who's trying to figure it out. Yeah. Well, in December uh, last year, I said that I wanted to get on more radio and podcasts. And uh, here I am well, there you go. in January. So that's manifesting at work, basically. So okay. essentially manifesting is... Um, saying out loud or writing down a goal or a particular uh, uh, achievement that you would like to aspire to um, and then taking the action steps towards making that happen. Now, can I be really cynical and say that sounds like ambition? Um, yeah, potentially, um, but... It's just another word. Yeah, exactly. I mean, ambition is often related more from a, maybe like a work perspective where you can kind of manifest anything, you know, you can you can manifest your dreams. <laughs> you can, can you manifest man- somebody to fill this seat in the cinema beside you that you have the coat on? <laughs> and so rather than having, I mean, it's, does it go to that like level? Yeah, people have manifested their dream man or their dream woman. Okay. And, but what I mean is it's like, it's what you have to do is identify something that you want mm-hmm. and then... Go and get it. <laughs> so you said more radio. Uh, yeah, and it's like, more radio. And then, you know, whatever those action steps that got me to being here. But if I hadn't said I wanted to go on the radio, I probably wouldn't have done right. those action steps, you know. So it's... it's uh, you, you you work with the Irish Country Magazine. Yes. Which is one of my favourites. Yeah. Because it's really, I think it's classy and really Irish and it's it's not so urban in yes. the sense that it's, it covers in a really nice way. That kind of, that's my compliment to the magazine. Thank I really you. Do. I've always said that and I, and I stand by that. And what are you doing with the magazine? So I work two days a week for the magazine as the advertising manager. So yes. I, I work on the commercial side of things, but I also have a life coaching column in the magazine. So I'm a columnist. And then I also write travel articles um, for them as well. Well, let's get travelling. <laughs> and, and let's talk, Ariane, about the the solo travel uh, ex- expedition, the, yeah. the, the odyssey that you went on. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I suppose like during COVID, like anyone, you know, waking up that first morning on the 15th of March with that utter dread of like, what is our life now? Um, I, I suppose as soon as our wings got clipped, I, I really felt the urge to just get in my car and drive. And it was an overwhelming urge that I that I had. And obviously I couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go anywhere. Um, I'm one of eight kids I'm, I'm and uh, I'm the fifth girl and we are, we're all a family of adventurers. So I've got family all over the world and the prospect of not being able to see them for however long you know was really um was really saddening me and I suppose just the idea of there being so much of the world still to see and not knowing how long we would be in lockdown for so um I suppose this little niggle just kept you know eating away at me and every day I'd meet my mum for our bubble bubble walk and I'd talk about it um and as soon as restrictions lifted I I packed up my car with my little dog Molly and uh, like a Tetris champion's dream I packed up my car and off I went and hit the road well why Europe. don't you introduce us to Molly um she's not here but yeah. what are we talking about so Molly Bloom I'm a Bloomsday baby so Very she's named good. after <laughs> Molly Bloom from Ulysses and actually we sailed away on the Ulysses Irish Ferries which Even is quite better. ironic is, I know yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah Molly is uh, a beautiful chocolate brown cockapoo she's about 8 kilos and she's just my my bestest bestest little friend and I have her about four and a half years and you packed um, her packed her packed your Tetris boot <laughs> got in the car and headed to the Ulysses boat yes and went where 
So I um, basically decided to go on a little uh, year travel, nomadic, digital nomad, uh, working abroad life in Europe. So um, I went through the UK, down through London um, and onto the Channel Tunnel into Paris, where I lived for a month in a month in Montmartre, which was beautiful. Okay. Um, and then went down to Denia in Spain, which is in between Alicante and Valencia. Um, spent two months living there. Um, went over to Portugal, Lisbon, Seville. I had my 40th birthday month in Marbella um, and then went back 40th up to the... 40th birthday month? <laughs> the style. I had friends coming and family. Good Lord. Um, and then, yeah, the south of France. So living in Provence for about a month and a half. Then into Italy where I spent four months. Then over to Croatia, Austria, Switzerland. So basically 11 countries, 35,000 kilometres and about 150 cities. Amazing. And we were all sitting in our living rooms <laughs> on laptops going, why aren't we seeing the world? That's solo traveller Ariana Dawn talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. HBO's The Last of Us is a 10-part series showing in this part of the world on Sky. It's based on a video game and has been widely regarded as the first successful video game adaptation for the screen. RTE business journalist Adam McGuire joined Claire Byrne this morning to talk about when games become movies and TV series. There has been a link over a long period of time between games and films or TV shows, but it used to go in the other direction. Didn't yeah, it? a long tradition of the of the game tie-in to the movie or TV show it goes all the way back really to the late seventies. Uh, so really, the very early days of, of home gaming, uh, you know, the Atari and, and the BBC Micro and all that. There are a few successes along the way. You know, there's a Nintendo 64 game uh, based on GoldenEye that came out in the late nineties, still considered one of the best games ever made. But generally, a lot of these are. are pretty bad. They're kind of quick and nasty cash-ins on, on the success of a film or a show. And and some of them are actually considered the worst games ever made. Uh, one is regularly referred to as the worst game ever made. It was based on E.T. It came out on the Atari 2600 in the early 80s. Uh, the developer was given just five weeks to make the game. They wanted to have it out in time for, for Christmas in 1983. Unsurprisingly, it was rubbish. It, it didn't work in parts. Apparently, if you moved E.T. the wrong way, he'd get stuck and that was it. You just had to restart the game if you wanted to, to, to go anywhere with it. And there were rumours for years that that Atari had dumped uh, copies of the game to hide the failure of it. Uh, and a couple of years ago, someone actually went digging in uh, in New Mexico and found hundreds of thousands of old Atari games, including E.T., not just E.T., but others. Uh, and, and it's now one of the once buried copies is now in the Smithsonian in Washington, such as the, the legend around the game. But they, they literally dumped it then. Yeah, literally dumped it, buried it out in the desert in a mm-hmm. landfill because of how poor it sold. Uh, but but I, I mean it, generally we saw those movie tie-ins but it hasn't always been one-way street. There have also been some uh, f- films and TV shows based on popular games in the past. Okay as well. and that's that's why we're talking about this today because of The Last of Us. But what are the other examples from previous years? I think probably the most uh, successful example is Pokemon. Uh, many people probably think of it as a cartoon but it actually started life as a game and then the, the cartoon came out about a year later. It was, it was actually two games for the Nintendo Game Boy. Uh, Earthworm Jim is a cartoon I remember as a kid. That was also based in a game. I didn't realise that till years uh, later. And there would have been other cartoons, a lot of them targeted at, at younger viewers based on, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog and, and mm-hmm. so on. But there were some big budget Hollywood attempts going back to the 90s as well. Um, and again, like with the games, a lot of them were duds. Uh, the first big bo- uh, Hollywood attempt was a Super Mario movie in 1993. And it had a really stacked cast at Bob Hoskins, Dennis Hopper, John Leguizamo, Fiona Shaw. Uh, but it was this weird dystopian, grungy kind of thing that 
really bore very little resemblance to the, to the Nintendo game itself. And it was a huge flop, uh, probably as a result. Five to ten million dollar loss at the box office based on its budget. Hopkins and uh, and uh, Hoskins and Hopper both said it was the worst thing they ever did. Uh, although, as these things tend to do, it's kind of become a cult classic now. You know, mm-hmm. these, these kind of duds because often of do. Because of the awfulness of it. Partly because of the weirdness and awfulness of it. But we also had lots of other bad examples. There was a, a Street Fighter film with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Kylie Minogue in the 90s, uh, which was also pretty terrible as well. Lots okay. of other films like that. Just going back to uh, Pokemon, the, the game came first, the TV show then... Uh, oh no, the, the, the TV show came second. It came second, yeah, it was a year after the... It was kind of part of the plan, but the game came first and then the TV show And did it work? That. It did work, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and said in, in, in Ireland... The cartoon was probably known of first by a lot of people and, and then, the, then the game yeah. and it's still a huge, huge franchise now. Okay. And the cards, of course. The and the cards, cards as well. Yeah, I mean, and the cards. And there are a couple of Pokemon films and yeah, it's, it's, it's massive, massive right. industry. Well, we have a, a clip. This is from the Pokemon movie. A mysterious invitation. You have been chosen to join a select group of Pokemon trainers at a special gathering. Sets Ash and his friends on a dangerous voyage to confront a formidable Pokemon. Humans may have created me, but they will never enslave me. The clone shall inherit the world. You can't do this. I won't let you. So game to TV and movies often doesn't work, but then sometimes it does, like Pokemon, and that encouraged the studios to take more risks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have seen some successes, Pokemon being maybe the, the most obvious one for, in terms of TV, but at the at the box office as well, you know, we had three Tomb Raider films, the first two with Angelina Jolie. They weren't great films, but they all made a lot of money, so so they were successful in that sense. There have been seven films based on Resident Evil, which is a, a zombie uh, shooter series, pretty much across the board critically panned but they've made about $1 billion combined at the box office over the past 20 years. We've also had in the last couple of years uh, a couple of films based on Sonic the Hedgehog. They've done quite well as a third one coming out this year as well. We have a clip of the the first one. Let's take a quick blast of Sonic. Why are you hiding out in my garage? They're coming for me! If they steal my power they could conquer the universe. You have to help me. No I don't. Please. It's life or death. Super Sonic. Good morning, my rural chum. Mr. Dr. Robotnik. I'm going to give you five seconds to tell me where it is. Wait, don't hurt him. Yeah, big hit in, in my house. And some, of the, some of the hammiest acting from Jim Carrey ever, but it works. It's, it's, see, it's if, really, really enjoyable. If people in your house love the game, like if somebody loves Resident Evil, even though the movie might be a turkey, they'll still be interested in seeing they it. They probably will be. And, and it works the other way as well that, you know, my kids probably don't know Sonic as a game. They know it as a film. Yeah. But, but in a couple of years time, they'll probably be playing they'll the Sonic game as well. Yeah, game. exactly. But aren't always successful. We've had a lot of duds. Prince of Persia, Assassin's Creed, Uncharted, all huge games, hugely popular franchises. Uh, films based on those were all huge failures at the box office. And it's that unreliability that, that tends to, to make studios a bit cautious about it. We we had a case in, in 2005, Microsoft tried to capitalise on the success of Halo, which is a, a big sci-fi shooter, a really, really popular game. It drew up a script on the games. It dressed people up as the main character, Master Chief, and sent them around to film studios saying, basically, we want to cut, we want an advance, and you need to give us a, an answer within X amount of hours if you want in on this. And a lot of studios just said no, flat yeah. out. Two teamed up to try and get a better deal. They got Peter Jackson on board, Neil Bloomcamp, uh, but it just fell apart within a year. And it was last year before anything based on Halo was made. There was a kind of average enough TV show that was made rather than a big, huge Hollywood film that was planned 15 years ago. Maybe they feel they don't need to put in the effort. 
you know, if you have your ready-made audience there, like we were saying, who are interested in the game, mediocre might be all right. Well, I, I think that's been the assumption. But what tends to happen then is you just annoy everybody. So the average audience don't like it because they don't know anything about it. The yeah. fans of the game don't like it because it's not the game that they recognise. You know, that Mario being the perfect example, it bared no resemblance whatsoever to, to the game itself. So if you like the game, you, you might go and see the film, but you're not going to like it. And if you don't like the game, you're definitely not going to like it. So they should strive for excellence, Adam, is <laughs> what we're saying. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Claire and RT business journalist Adam McGuire with sound advice for the game and movie industries this morning. Almost 2 million Irish people have accounts with the UK-based fintech company Revolut. And recently the company announced that its Irish customers would soon be migrated to an Irish rather than a Lithuanian IBAN. Connor Pope was on hand this afternoon to talk to Ray Darcy about the change and what it all means. Uh, so just give us a history of Revolut in Ireland first uh, and then we'll talk okay. about the IBANs, yeah. Well, I suppose the remarkable thing is they've only been in Ireland since 2015. So this fintech set up uh, in 2015 and it, it came into the Irish market almost immediately and Irish people took to it, particularly a younger cohort, because effectively what it did was it offered people an, an alternative to a bank. Not uh, not a full, it didn't have the full range of services that a bank offered, at least in the early days. Uh, but the really important thing I think that it did was it allowed people transfer money from one person to another person in real time. And that's why to revolute money and it became a verb. Mm. So you don't just send somebody money, say, I'll revolute that to you. And any time a technology becomes a verb, like to Google something or to hoover your carpet or whatever it might be you know you 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 get a sense that something is happening there that's out of the out of the ordinary so it happened extremely quickly and as you say it has around two million customers in ireland which is almost 10 percent of its global uh, customer base Uh, and i think one of the reasons for that is because a it, it offered something different and it offered something that irish banks at the time weren't offering. In many respects, it offered something that Irish banks still aren't offering. Um, and, it, and it was attractive to people because one of the things that bugs people, bugs me, is like when you're transferring money from an AIB account to a Bank of Ireland account or a PTSB account or whatever it might be, like the money just disappears into the ether. <laughs> it's like, For a few days, and, and, yeah. And especially if you transfer it on a Friday evening at five o'clock. Ah, uh, you can't be doing Monday. that. Because <laughs> like, lads, it's computers. They don't have a weekend. Why, why do I have to wait until the next business day. That makes no sense to me. And I've tried to extract, to find out why that is from banks. And I've never had a satisfactory answer. And I think the interesting thing about Revolut, it said, well, there should, there's no reason for that. It's a computer. And computers don't rest. And mm. if I transfer money from, from you, from me to you, using Revolut or indeed N26 or Bunk or one of the other fintechs because they're not the only player in the market. Well, then, you know, it goes instantly. And the other thing is uh, to transfer money, you just need a phone and a phone number. Uh, And as opposed to, oh, what's your BIC and your IBAN and blah, 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 blah. So it just, it, it it was easier. And I think that's why all of these fintechs have gone some way to eating a huge chunk of the traditional bank's lunch in recent times. So fintech is short for financial technology. Fintech, yes. yeah. Uh, how, I don't know if you know this, but how do the traditional banks view Revolut and their ear? Well, they should view them with deep suspicion, if not fear, because, you know, the, the traditional banks have been slow to move into the space. Now, why? Said that, why do you think? Well, it, well, for a start, I think a lot of banks here... You know, they, they understand that customers are very slow to switch. 
very, mm. very slow rates of switching banks, current accounts in this country. So uh, they might have been caught off guard a little bit. So that's one key thing. Um, and another point that, that that's worth remembering is that, um, you know, they, they are getting better. So the online platforms and the apps that are that that you know the various banks have are getting better. And one of the things that's coming down the tracks very soon is a, is is a kind of a, a collaboration between Permanent TSB, Bank of Ireland, AIB, and others, which is going to be called Sync. And basically, it will allow the Irish banks to do that real-time transfer that Revolut already does. And I think that'll be a bit of a game changer, and it'll allow the Irish banks claw back maybe some of the business that they've lost to Revolut. Okay, so Sync. When when is that imminent? We haven't got back. We'll, we'll get back it, to the IBAN in a moment. Yeah, it's it, it's it, it's been in the pipeline for three years. It was okay. it, you know it had to be given approval by the CCPC and the central bank and all of that stuff. Because like in fairness to the banks, they're, they're legacy banks, so they have different terms and conditions, and they have to work at a different rate than a, you know a startup. They don't have the same kind of dynamism that startups have. Okay. Now, the IBAN. So up until now, yeah. uh, Revolut had what sort of an IBAN? Or, or just explain IBANs to us first. Okay, well, it's a, it's a unique identifier that basically marks out a, a bank and an account as a standal, as a unique thing. And the, the, uh, Revolut were offering, like the Re, Re, Revolut were regulated in another part of the country, in another part of Europe. So they were offering Lithuanian IBANs to Irish people. Now, they were, they did have an Irish banking licence as of last year. And that Irish banking licence meant that they had the bank guarantee so that the, your money was protected up to 100,000 euros and all that stuff. But what they didn't have was an Irish IBAN. And that means that a lot of the time when people went to their employer and said, listen, can I have my money paid into my bank account? There were problems because the machine said, well, hang on a second, that's not an Irish account. That's a Lithuanian account. Or when you try to set up a direct debit to pay for a service, whatever the service might be, there were people experiencing problems because, again, they were trying to set it up with a Lithuanian bank account as opposed to an Irish bank account. Uh So that's why this IBAN matters because now it the computers that we've talked about already will identify the Revolut Bank accounts as Irish. So there can be no impediment to having your money lodged into your account, your wages, or there can be no impediment to you setting up direct debits. Now, there shouldn't have been an impediment anyway, because the whole the whole notion of the single European payments area, or SEPA, was that all of Europe, all of the EU, Eurozone countries were treated equally. But that just wasn't the case in reality for a lot of people. But that's an obstacle that was in the way. Now, they're not the first of this fintech company's bunk last year, got itself an Irish IBAN. So they're not the first to do it, but they are the biggest player in the market to do it. Mm. Connor Pope talking fintech with Ray Darcy this afternoon. He probably does know what a tracker mortgage is. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, GP Maura Finn joined Claire Byrne this morning to talk about concussion. And the item started off with Dr Finn giving a definition of the condition. Concussion, what is it? How do you diagnose it? Okay, so what it is is a traumatic brain injury that's usually induced by some impulsive force, so either directly to the head or to the body that causes the head to jolt in some way. And it typically results in rapid onset and but short-lived impairment of neurological function and what that means like uh, confusion or a headache or something that but it's it comes on quickly and respond and will resolve by itself spontaneously it's a functional disturbance so it's something to do with the brain being swollen and maybe a disruption of blood flow um temporarily not a structural thing this doesn't involve um brain or skull fractures or things like that so it's um By definition, it resolves spontaneously, but it can cause long-term repercussions if it isn't actually acknowledged. 
So the red flags then and the warning signs, what should you be looking out for? Okay, so the first thing is any injury on a, a sports field, the, the, the basic um, life support sy- systems have to be checked. So your airways and breathing and circulation and make sure there isn't a very serious injury. Um, you look for neck, severe neck pain, double vision, a seizure, um, severe loss of consciousness that doesn't actually r- resolve quickly, vomiting. These would be signs that you go, okay, this is very serious and needs to be taken uh, beyond just the assessment tools that we'd use on the pitch. Um Obviously, as well, the type of injury and how the, the athlete responds immediately after the injury. Is the is the athlete lying motionless and can't get up? Are they disorientated? Is there kind of a blank, blank vacant stare and poor concentration and things like that in the immediate aftermath of the injury are really important to assess as well. And then immediately what happens is you take the player off the field and that is the golden rule with mm-hmm. this. And that's really important for a coach to know, for a parent to know, if you have a team doctor, if you're at that level for that person to know and to act on. Yes, absolutely. And to be fair, most coaches and, uh, are extremely well schooled in this. And then obviously medics that are involved in, in um, more elite sports people will know all these tools. But it can be difficult. Sometimes it goes unrecognised or a player will sometimes, you know, in the in the heat of a the battle of a, of a game, you know, will not want to come off the pitch, may, may actually kind of shake off an injury too quickly. So what's really important is that you have a very low threshold, a very low mark where you go, this could be, if there's any suggestion that there's a concussion involved, you take them off the pitch and you do a very um, methodical sequence of in, investigations to see what the level of concussion is. And I think that's what we need to maybe highlight today is that these very, very well um, uh, trained professionals and coach people may maybe just need to kind of have further uh, training in these SCAT tools. These are kind of this sports concussion assessment tool, which is a very particular way of, um, of assessing an athlete and seeing if there is any serious damage. And that involves asking a number of questions. Yes. So you, you look at the observed, like I say, how the, the athlete was immediately after the injury. Um, you do a memory assessment, some really simple things like what venue are we at today? Who scored last in the game? Um, where did you play last week and who won? Things like that will actually give an, a very immediate assessment of the the, the athlete's um, uh, neurological symptoms. Then an examination, they do a Glasgow Como scale, which is kind of a, but a kind of a, a variation on that, where you're looking at eye responses and verbal responses and motor responses, um, and then after that, the athlete would be brought in and would be given a questionnaire that they'd fill out to kind of evaluate their own symptoms. And then there's also short-term memory assessments where they're kind of given words and then to repeat them backwards, um, months of the year backwards, things like that, and assessing their balance and coordination. It's quite an in-depth tool, but it's very, very good. And it should be standard practice for anybody involved in in sports coaching or um, if they're associated with kind of medical sideline assessments. And the treatment then afterwards is to rest. So you come off obviously immediately um even if the player is saying, no, I want to get back on, that player has to come off. Yeah, I think that should be the golden rule. And, I, you know, obviously you understand that, you know, the player may not want to, or actually maybe the coaching staff don't want them to either. But this is, has to be, if there's any suggestion that there is any sign of concussion, they come off. And the other thing is that, you know, they should be monitored in, in at home for at least 24 hours afterwards as well to make sure that there isn't any other signs of deterioration afterwards. And then this is the tricky thing. 
they when they the approach back to sport or normal activities has to be done very, very gradually and very slowly. And that that can be a a tricky thing to manage too, because again, players want to get back. And, you know, if it's a young person, they need to get back to school. But everything needs to be kind of done on a very, very limited basis. Let's go through uh, some of the questions. Here's an interesting one from a sports coach. I'm a sports coach, not a medic. If a player under my care gets a knock to the head, I check them for confusion, lack of balance, whether they're pale, clammy, uh, or whether they have feelings of nausea. If they're fine on all of these checks and they feel confident to go back on, is it okay to let them? The parents are always notified and told to monitor them overnight and they get a copy of the concussion protocol. So if, if that coach does all of those checks... Players fine. They answer them all um, to the satisfaction of the coach. Can the coach let them back on the field? That's that's the golden question, isn't it? Actually, really, I would say no. If there has been any suggestion that if the coach has assessed them for concussion, there's been a knock to the head um, and there's a need to assess, then really that player should be taken off the the pitch okay. now it's it's a very very woolly area isn't it you know you could have a knock to the head which is a glancing blow that doesn't actually cause any issue but if I think there sh- it should be in um, every coach's mind that if they're assessing for concussion it could possibly co- be concussion and therefore rest is the golden rule there and mm-hmm. um, that coach sounds like they're you know very involved and very up to date with it but I would I would say they need to go a step further and use the maybe the SCAT tool and um, take them off the pitch Okay. Because the problem is, if you have unrecognised concussion, um, you may the, you may have a more increased risk of concussion subsequently if you have another blow. So, and and the more concussion somebody has, the more damage we know that they could potentially suffer from in the long term. That's GP Dr. Maura Finn talking all things concussion related on this morning's today with Claire Byrne. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.